Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here with you today as we continue our series, You Pick. We're in week three where we're just going over different topics of questions you have asked. Remember the first week we talked all about heaven and we learned that heaven is, well, just a temporary place and that for eternity we're going to live with God and the merging of heaven and earth together. Last week we talked all about hell and we learned that hell is ultimately a place that people choose. Today we're going to dive right into our question because there's a couple of different things we're going to talk about. But here's the question that was asked. It was, how do you answer people who ask why God would send people to hell that have never had the chance to hear about Jesus? And I put here the gospel. So we're going to say, how do we respond to people who say, who ask why God would send someone to hell if they've never heard the gospel? And I want to take this question into two parts, and this sermon is going to be different than, than I've ever done, so, so just bear with me, and we're going to try to work through this together, because the first part I want to deal with is how do you answer people who ask? Okay, because I'm, I'm so glad they asked it this way. It gives me the opportunity to talk about this. But how do you answer people who ask? Well, first, let me let you know, I have never shared the gospel or talked about the faith with an unchurched person or someone who didn't know much about Christianity. They've never asked me a question like this before. So you can feel pretty confident that if you're going to share your faith or talk to somebody who doesn't know about Jesus or don't have a big Christianity background, this probably won't come up. But many times people ask this question because they're trying to play the game I've never, I'm never interested in playing. And the game is called Stump a Christian. Y'all ever... Anybody ever try to ask you to play that part? Yeah. Yeah, they want to do stump a Christian. They have pre-packaged questions with pre-packaged kind of things to try to trip up Christians. They're trying to win an argument. They're trying to expose your thinking. And, and they're trying to say that what we believe but we're just not saying is that we have a terrible God, an unloving God, and a God who just wants to send people to hell. Another question that people ask that kind of tries to trip you up is that idea of, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it up? Right? They try to pose these questions in a way that say, well, either way you answer it, he's not all powerful. Now, if these are the motives you're dealing with that you, you believe that someone's trying to play stump the Christian, the best question you can ask them is this. If a lion and a shark were to get in a fight, who would win? And if they look at you like you're looking at me, you just tell them, I thought we were playing a game of who can ask the most nonsense question and tell them you're trying to play with them. You don't find that as amusing as I do, but I find that rather amusing. You say, well, well, Brian, there's no such thing as a bad question. Yes, there is. Okay, your teachers were just trying to be nice to you. There are things as bad questions. And even worse, there are bad ways of thinking. And if you're coming into a conversation just trying to trip the other person up or worse yet, if someone wants to come into a conversation with me and they're just trying to catch me, I don't want to engage in that conversation. As C.S. Lewis said, nonsense remains nonsense even when we talk about God in it. So just be careful of what they're doing. And the second type of person that's trying to play stump, stump a question, uh, excuse me, stump a Christian, is when they ask this, there are people who believe in what's called universalism. And what they're trying to say is that all, all religions lead to the same place. They're trying to make this, this claim that, well, 
well, Christ said he was the only way, and he can't be because if Christ was the only way, that means people are going to hell. So all religions must come together. Well, recently I've heard people talk about this and what's regarding what's called progressive Christianity. And it's, it's trying to make our faith kind of look like modern politics where people are saying a whole bunch of things and saying nothing. You ever seen that before? Because what's going on is they're changing the definition of words all the time. And if you're engaging in a conversation and someone keeps changing the definition of what things mean and what they've meant for 2,000 years... It's pretty hard to engage in that conversation if things keep changing. So that's what's going on there. And I can't have arguments or answer questions like this to people that don't want to engage with the scriptures. Now, there are plenty of apologetists who does. I mean, you got C.S. Lewis, you got Alistair McGrath, you got Will and Lane Craig. You got plenty of people who can talk about these philosophical things. I mean, and they are brilliant. I am not them. If we're not talking about the scriptures, I'm not the best person to talk to about those things. So, with all of that, if somebody has the wrong motive coming to me, now you do what you want. I was asked this. How do I answer? Now, if they have the wrong motives, I don't engage. I don't talk. I mean, if, if they want to talk about things, we could talk about things, but I don't want to play stump the Christian just like I see throughout the Bible. Jesus didn't play stump the Messiah. They constantly came to him trying to trap him and trick him, and he didn't engage in that he was significantly more intelligent than us, right? He could ask a question back that would catch them up and he'd, he'd go about his business. Now, I have heard this question asked by genuine, curious Christians, and that's, that's what I'm imagining here. I've heard this asked by, by Christians who are seriously struggling in their faith. They're thinking about walking away from their faith. They're genuinely trying to make sense of, of how all of this stuff works out and how God can be loving and how God can be just. How, how does that make any sense with the idea of hell? I've also heard well-meaning Christians who are just growing in their faith by leaps and bounds, trying to put their theology together, just seemingly trying to deal with this question. Now, for these people, I definitely want to engage in a conversation with them. Absolutely. And the question is usually posed like this. If a group of people were on an island and they never had a missionary come to her and they've never heard the gospel and, and, and you know, they're just all by themselves, nothing's ever come to um, ever, the gospel's never come to them in any way. Do you mean or do you think that God would send these people to hell if Jesus is the only way? Now, before we engage in that, I have to admit something to you. For me, I do not consider myself, uh, this will make sense in a minute, I do not consider myself a student of one theological formula. Right? And, if, and if you don't know what that is, that's okay. I'll, Explain it for a second, but I'm not an Arminianist, I'm not a Calvinist, I'm not a dispensationalist, I'm not a covenant. And what this means is I have never accepted prepackaged theological frameworks. Okay, and so a lot of people do, and so they have these prepackaged theological framework, and they read the theological framework, and then they read the Bible in light of their theological framework. Now, I do my best to come into the Bible without that baggage. It's completely impossible, and I can't, but I try. I try to expose myself as to many thinkers as I possibly can, and my favorite writers are New Testament scholars. And the reason why is because they have no problem blowing up theological systems because they're not New Testament theologians. All right, so a New Testament scholar comes and be like, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I don't have to figure it out. That's for the theologian to work through. And so I like those guys who keep working through things. And why this is important is because many times this, this question is answered as a logical conclusion to somebody's theological system. 
They're worried about defending their system and their theology. For instance, my Reformed friends or my Methodist friends, they all have prepackaged systems they work through all the time. Or even some may even be worried that they have to give an answer to everything. But you have to understand, I don't believe I need to defend God, but I do feel the need to correct terrible theology, so we're going to talk about it today. And why this matters is because I am completely and 100% comfortable always saying, I don't know. I'm always comfortable saying, you know what, this isn't revealed, I'm not too sure, we'll have to leave this in God's hand. I never try to allow my personal logic to play a system out and to say something that God never says. And while theology is helpful, it can also go too far, I believe. So this is important, again, because a lot of times this is actually answered because of somebody's theological framework. Whether they know that or not, they're just trying to defend something else. Because most theological frameworks try to resolve the tension that the Bible creates. Like any great story, there's tension in the Bible. And that's what makes any story absolutely amazing. Isn't that why you hang in there to the end? Because of the tension, because of the problem, because of that thing that needs to be resolved. And what I have found, and perhaps you have, it's usually within that tension that I grow. It's usually in that struggle that God speaks and God moves and God helps me along. Usually, so I don't, I don't want to dismiss tension. I want to live in it. Is it uncomfortable? Absolutely. But I've never been comfortable and grew at the same time. Have you? Right, usually you get uncomfortable in order to grow. So, back to the question. Why? Why God would send people to, why, excuse me, how do we answer the question, why would God send people to hell who've never heard the gospel? I would probably start, if you were to ask me this, and let's just pretend you just asked me and we'll go through it. I'd probably start asking a series of questions like this. Who said that God was sending people to hell that never heard the gospel? And who said there are people who have never heard the gospel? And how do we know that God would let that situation ever be true? I mean, how do we know these things? Because regardless of maybe what you've heard, let's say you're this person, here's how I understand the gospel. I understand that the gospel isn't just a theory or set of facts. The gospel is a summons. And I love it. Michael Byrd puts it this way. He's... Oh, the questions were up there. I was supposed to go on with you. You saw them. He says, the gospel is not just religious data we expect people to agree with. The gospel is a royal summons. I love that. Royal summons to receive Jesus as Savior and to submit to him as Lord. The gospel isn't just information. It's a story with a message that's supposed to invoke a response from the person listening. And it's a framework that you and I are invited to join in because it tells us about the biggest problem in the world. And if it's a summons, it's not just, it's not a statement of facts. For instance, suppose you went to the doctor because you weren't feeling well. Suppose the doctor said, hey, I'm going to run some tests. We're going to find out what's going on. They do. Doctor says, look, I found the problem. You have cancer. The doctor says, but we can do surgery to fix it. We can, we can eradicate all the cancer. We can get rid of it. I've done this so many times. We know it will definitely work. Would you ask the doctor 
well, what about all the people on a remote island who may have this cancer who don't have access to this surgery? Why? Why would that not be your response? Why, why wouldn't you get into this philosophical debate when your need, there's a problem and the solution's in front of you? See, the gospel is a summons. What are you going to do with it? You here, not, not this idea of what someone else is. What are you going to do with it? Just like if you're at the doctor's office, more than likely the doctor would say, what we're talking about is you. All right, what, are, what are you going to do with the gospel? In the same way, the gospel is a summons for all people who hear to summon to Jesus Christ because the gospel tells us the story, the Bible, the whole story of Jesus tells us there's a problem in this world and also gives us the solution. You see, the problem in the world, the Bible calls this sin and evil. They say it's very real, and it says that all of us humans are very capable of evil. Who's capable of evil here? Just me? Okay, all of us. Yeah, that's one of those things. Yeah, I mean, come on, your spouse already knows. We're all capable of evil, and sometimes, if we're honest, we're disgusted by our, how capable we actually are. Sometimes we have those thoughts, and we're like, whoa, where did that come from? The Bible says, listen, humans have participated in this evil. It's the common human problem. We all do things we know we shouldn't do. But that wasn't God's purpose for us. He created us to represent him in this world, to share a special relationship with him in this world. But sin has distorted it. Sin has broken that relationship, and so God has done something about it. And no matter what anybody believes, all humans know the world isn't right. That's why all humans fight for human progress. They do it in a bunch of different ways, but we keep trying to make the world a better place because we're always saying it's not just there yet. There's something inside all of us that, no, it's just not right. Something's missing. And we're told from a biblical worldview, the problem is sin. The problem is evil, and it resides in all of us. But we're told that if we repent and we turn to Jesus, we will be reborn into this new life, this new way of being human. And from what we see in the scriptures, God goes through great lengths to save his people. From the calling of Abraham to the forming of the nation of Israel, through their ups and downs, God called them into a covenant relationship with him. And we see that this, this, this whole nation was formed, and then we see Jesus was the fulfillment of Israel as the true king, the people all of us had been waiting on. But this true king died for us and rose again. I mean, that's what the Bible writers keep saying, Jesus died. They were infatuated. Jesus died. He died. He died. But he rose he came to give us this new life. And it turns out, especially for the Jewish people, God's plan was significantly larger than they had ever thought. It was significantly bigger than they had ever thought. Israel and the people of God had now been expanded through Jesus Christ. I know we get in this conversation, is it Israel, is it the church, or how all this works? No, no, no. Jesus came, fulfilled Israel, now opened it up. Now all of us can join in to be the people of God through Jesus Christ. And we know this because God has been on a redemptive mission to save us and call us back to him. Because here's what we are told. We're told that God wants to save. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 says, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
God has revealed himself uh, through nature, the Bible tells us. First, uh, First Romans, that's not a book, by the way. It's just Romans. Romans 1, 19 through 20 says, Since what has been known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without an excuse. You see, Paul tells us that God has revealed himself in creation. It's called general revelation in theological terms. And evidently, according to Paul, that people are going to be People are going to be held accountable for this, for the general revelation. He says they are without excuse. So if they're without excuse because God has revealed himself in nature, if God can hold them accountable for that, it seems to reason that that can pull them closer to God or do something there, bring them to Jesus. I'm not sure how it works, but Paul doesn't go down that road. He simply says, to be honest about this, he simply says it just holds people condemned. But there's something there. It's interesting. Then we get uh, in Romans 1.32, it says that God has revealed himself through morality. Romans 1.32 says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So he says that they all know God's righteous decree. It's about this morality that God has put inside all of us. C.S. Lewis calls this the natural law, right? In that book, Mere Christianity, that everybody loves, he says that throughout all time, there's been this morality, this general sense of right and wrong put in all people. He says while they differ about the details, the idea of right and wrong has always been throughout human history. And so if there's an idea of right and wrong in all of us, then there must be somebody compelling us to do these things. There must be somebody or something that put this in mankind. But again, Paul says they've actually knew about it and they chose to reject it. They continue to do those things that deserve death and also approve of others. So Paul, the picture he paints is that people just reject these things. Again, we see that God will judge. Look at this in Romans 2 says this, 2.14 says, and, and on, it says, Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15. It says, They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. That's that morality in there. And their thoughts sometimes accusing them. This is what's interesting. And other times, even defending them. I find that interesting. We'll talk about that a different day. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So I have no idea how this works out, but Paul is saying that God will hold them accountable for what's been revealed. And from how I read it, evidently, however it works, God's revealed enough to hold them accountable, however that looks. But doesn't this scare you that God's going to judge our secrets? make you nervous makes me nervous maybe it's just y'all maybe never do anything wrong i tell you what y'all should be up here preaching to me evidently that's how this needs to work and here's what i know about god look at this it says god is righteous and just psalms 89 14 righteous and just are the foundation of your throne the foundation of your throne and love and faithfulness go before you 
We also know that God is compassion, compassionate. Next slide. Yeah, God is compassionate and gracious. Psalm 86, 15. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. We know God is merciful. Look at this verse. This will throw some theological questions at you. Romans eleven thirty two says, For God has bound everyone over to disobedience. Doesn't sound very helpful, does it? He says, so that he may have mercy on them all. I don't know how that all works. We're not talking about that, but evidently God is pretty merciful. Look at this. God loves us. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. We could have done John 3, 16, but I like this one. It says this, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love, that's us together as a church, may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Can we ever figure it out? No. That you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And so whenever we think we've got God's love figured out or what exactly it looks like, he says, well, it's even wider, it's even longer, it's even higher, and it's even deeper. In fact, you can't even know it, but keep on going. Part of the things we're doing as a church is we're inviting people in to learn about God's love with us. To work through God's love with us. Like, hey, let's figure this out. Let's keep exploring. Because it's, it's unknowable. It surpasses knowledge. But we can just keep growing in his love. We also see that God keeps his promises. Throughout the Bible, we see that God keeps his covenant with his people. Even though they do some really messed up things. He always came through. And Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises is faithful. Throughout the Bible, we see that Jesus accepts the people who seek him. He shows compassion and grace and mercy to all the people who come to him with humility. But all the ones who came to him that already had everything figured out, how did that work out for them? Read your Bible, it never does. Never goes well. The ones who came to him humbly, the ones that came to him says, hey, I am yours. The one who came to him seeking, not the ones who came with this righteousness or this pride that came, Jesus, you're supposed to act like this or you shouldn't be doing that. That never worked out well for them. But the ones who came humbly, Jesus always restored or helped or loved. I mean, it's amazing what he does. And we know these things because what's called special revelation. All right, we know that in, in, in theology, we call it, through God's word, this is God's special revelation, and ultimately through his son, we see Jesus Christ, so he's revealed himself in these ways, and we see that God has gone through great lengths to save people. I mean, Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago for us. So we see that God reveals himself in nature, we see God reveals himself through morality, we see God reveals himself through Jesus Christ, and now we know a special revelation in his word. God reveals himself in his word. And so what we see even further once we dive into the Bible, this is a long explanation to a question, isn't it? But when we dive even further into the Bible, we see that God does some pretty amazing things, like he even further reveals himself. We see a young virgin woman become pregnant. We see people were able to speak in tongues. 
which means there's two different ways to talk about it, both in a heavenly language and this, this heavenly utterance and other languages they could communicate people what they didn't know. We see people were able to do miraculous miracles. Can you have miraculous miracles? Does that work or does that? I'm going to go for it. We have miraculous miracles in the Bible. These things happen. Interesting, when the gospel is moving, people were being healed and things were happening. But what's more interesting about those miracles, they usually didn't cause people to believe. They usually cause people to get mad. It's very interesting. We see that God gives people dreams and visions when he speaks to them. We see that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we see God seemingly send random strangers down the road when somebody's parked. Look up Philip and ask what he does there. And we see angels showing up in the middle of a field, talking to common shepherd people, announcing Jesus Christ. As I said before, when I think about God, I think about how he's preserved his people and called people to himself. I mean, Israel is still preserved Nobody can explain why Israel has not been stomped out yet. It makes no sense. Why is Israel still there? Or the church? Why is the church still here? You realize that this whole thing happened with Jesus and his 12 disciples under the Roman Empire? The most powerful empire the world had ever seen then proactively tried to stomp out Christianity? Read the history. They wanted to destroy it. And what's funny is they wanted to destroy it. And so God said, well, I'm just going to make it your actual empire's religion a couple hundred years later. And here we are talking about the fall of Rome. But 2,000 years later, we're still talking about the presence of the church. And the Bible? How do we still have this? I mean, you could do your research about any historical document about anything you believe. I mean, especially 2,000 years ago. They have more documents of the Bible than anything else. I mean, the preservation of his word is amazing. You see, the whole premise of salvation, this whole idea of being saved, is that God chose to do this and reveal himself in Jesus Christ. And from the few things we, we talked about today and the few things I know about in Scripture and what I see in history and how I've seen God, God move, it, it seems that God is pretty passionate about his own plan to redeem people. This is what I think we forget all the time. The whole idea of redemption in general was whose idea? God's. Why would I think that his plan would be inadequate? It was his idea. Some people talk about God as if redemption was their idea, and they're explaining to God how he needs to work it out. But redemption, think, I mean, we need to remember this. He didn't have to do it, but he wanted to do it. He chose to do it. Salvation and redemption was his idea. So how? How can you answer the question? How can you answer people who ask why God would send people to hell who've never heard the gospel? I can't answer that question because I don't think it's a possibility. From what I know about God, what I've, what I've read in scripture is he seems to go out of his way to reveal himself to people. And he never had to do it in the first place. Do we understand that? Like God never had to come here. He, he never had to give us his word, he, but, he, but he did, and he does, and he works in all sorts of ways. Perhaps the rhetorical question asked by Abraham would help us. It says this, 
Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And if you don't like the way I answered the question, I understand. I do understand that, but please know, this isn't because I'm choosing to go soft on things. I've never been accused of that, by the way. I spent 40 minutes last week talking about the reality of hell, and you can cipher through my sermons. I'll call sin out pretty clearly. But I do believe that God's going to hold me accountable for what I teach. And if he hasn't said something, I don't, need to feel, I don't feel the need to speak on his behalf for something he didn't say. What he does say, well, I can hold on to that. See, a verse that helped me a long time ago, and maybe it helps you today, is this. Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may forever follow the words of the law. You see, there are some things God hasn't revealed to us, but as I've discussed, he's revealed quite a bit. And of those things that he has revealed about being gracious and loving and kind and fair and just and the creator, and this whole thing was my idea, we can cling to those. But the secret things belong to the Lord. Y'all ever try to steal something from God? How well do you think that would work? You're like, well, Brian, I I know, but if if something God hasn't revealed, that means he's kept it to himself. What are the chances of me figuring it out? If God has hidden it from me, what are the chances of me figuring it out? Look, I know I'm not that smart. You can deal with that question on your own. But I'm well, okay, comfortable saying, well, God has chosen to, to not reveal things. But what he has told us, how about we boldly share those things? So what happens to the people who've never heard the gospel? This is one of those things he hasn't revealed to us, folks. But what, my, what I think, if you're asking me to, to, to guess, I don't think it's possible. Because what he has revealed is that he's a God who reveals himself. He's a God who cares about people. He's a God who's done incredible things. And I can't tell you if an island that's never heard, how do you know an angel didn't show up yesterday? How do you know a Tiger didn't talk. A donkey talks in the Bible. You read your Bible, folks? I mean, how do you, we don't know. So what we're doing is we're putting ourselves in a situation we don't know. So let's just, we don't, it's not a question we can ask. Perhaps a better question to ask if someone asked you a question like this that may help you to get to the bottom of what's going on with them. Just ask them what their view of God is. Because what you may find out is their view of God may not be the God you believe in either. It may be something made up. It may be a little bit of Hollywood sprinkled in with a little bit of other religions. There's a great chance, not everybody, there's a great chance they've never even read about the God of the Bible. They're just speaking about something they've never even read for themselves. Because if you read the scriptures and you get caught up in the story of scriptures, you'll be amazed by Jesus. There's nobody who isn't. You'll be amazed with who he is and what he said about himself. And so as followers of Jesus, what I want to ask you is, 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 do you believe God? I mean, do you actually believe he is God, or do you believe that somehow you need to help him be who he says he is? Or do you lack trust in some areas? I mean, do you, do you saturate yourself in God's word? Do you saturate yourself in getting caught up in the story and the tension and the characters of Scripture? 
what I'm afraid of is far too many of us, while I like devotions and I like um, lessons and things like that, I think we've forgotten to get caught up in the story of Scripture. It's kind of like, y'all have, y'all have a favorite, everybody's a favorite movie. Okay, take your favorite movie. Let's say it's a real popular one. You know how then after that, then they come out with that other movie or they have the movie, then they like duplicate it, but this time the director speaks over it and explains everything to you? Y'all know what I'm talking I've never watched one. They're, they're super boring. I've made it like two minutes. But, you know, it's kind of like that's what we do with Scripture. We go to Scripture with somebody explaining it to all, this, all the time rather than getting caught up in the movie. Get caught up in the movie, folks. Get caught up in the movie. Read the story. Get caught up in the Bible. That'll tell you, and you'll understand, and you'll watch Jesus, and you'll see these things, and it'll blow your mind. Then once you fall in love with the movie and you fall in love with the story, then go back and hear some commentary on it. Then go back and get into the nitty-gritty. But we don't go to the commentary folks. Well, excuse me, first. Read your story. Read the Bible. Get caught up with Jesus. You'd be amazed at what you believe about Jesus or believe about God, and then you read the Bible, and you're like, man, that doesn't seem to be who he is at all. So get caught up in that. Get caught up in his word. So what I can't answer is this, though. Do I believe that God is limited by our actions? <laughs> I hope not. No way. I don't believe God's limited by our actions. I believe God works through our inadequacies for his glory. I do not believe God's glory is limited because of my inadequacies. Does that make sense? I, I, I can't think like that or he wouldn't be God. But I do believe that our passion and our concern for the salvation of others should prompt us to share the gospel, should prompt us to do mission work, to give to missions work. I think we should follow God's leading in getting the gospel all across the world. And I believe the best tension us as Christians can live with is this, what Paul says. Romans 10, 14 to 15. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. What if we didn't resolve the tension, we just left the tension because that's where Paul left it? Does he answer this? Nope. God is a missionary God. It's obvious. He came to us, and we should go to people. So we don't want to resolve the tension. We want to live in this tension that the gospel is real, that Jesus has come to save, that heaven and hell, these aren't just ideas. These are real places. People have choices. We should support missions work. We should support getting the gospel out and knowing the gospel and sharing the gospel and living the gospel. But however it works, we don't want to Resolve the tension that would cause us to think that, number one, the gospel rests on us. Oh, thank you for letting me know. It's 11 o'clock. Thank you for that. Okay, got it. I'm going into part two of the sermon now. But here's what I need us to understand. We never will get into the place where we think that getting the gospel out depends upon us as if we are God. Jesus is the Savior. Don't put yourself as the Savior of humankind. Follow the Lord's will. But there's a place where we can say, well, if we don't get the gospel, then the gospel can't go out. We're not the Savior Jesus is. Or 
the other side, we don't want to get into the place where we go, oh, well, missions isn't important. We don't really care. God will take care of it. Neither one of those are options. It's right there in the middle. Let's be about the Lord's work. Let's get the gospel out and just what we do know about God. Let's embrace that and share that with people. Because I think far too many people don't know about how good and great God really is. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today in just in all of Jesus Christ, Lord, as we all are reminded of the gospel, as we're reminded that this whole plan of redemption and salvation was yours. Lord, we all know this world is broken and sinful. We all are aware of the sin that resides in us, and we're so thankful that you have saved us and redeemed us from that. Father, we thank you that you are a God who's on, on a worldwide mission to redeem Father, let us embrace that. Let us to join you in this mission to reach the world with the gospel. Let our prayer boldly be, Lord, use us how you see fit. We do come to you collectively and pray that you use our church as a mighty force to spread the gospel into this community, into the state, our country, and far beyond. But Lord, help us first start here. Share the gospel here. Become your missionaries in everyday life. Because the world needs Jesus. We thank you that we know and that you've revealed your son to us. Thank you. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.